Well, we're going to be uh, continuing uh, now in our uh, series um, that we've been looking at, uh, Truths About My Tongue, looking at our speech, looking at our communication, and really looking at why that is so important. This will be lesson number four, our final lesson. Some of you have been away Thanksgiving and your travels. Many of you have been here as well. I want to remind you that those messages are online you go to TimberlakeBaptist.org and just go over to the, the ministries, go over to the college ministry, Boundless, and uh, you'll see Clay's messages and, as well as these here from Thursday nights and Sunday nights, and um, you can catch up on that if that's something you desire. But I'll try to do some uh, review today for some of you who've been away. That'll be brief and try to get it through it quickly. If you're a note taker, you'll have to take them quick. Um, I want to be like Clay someday and manuscript uh, things in a nice outline that's understandable for you to, to read. So um, you can pray for me. Maybe I can put some details together, put that on the website as well, and you can get a summary um, in PDF form also. So we're learning about truths about our tongue, right? Let me give you a, a statement here, something um, I got thinking about when talking about our tongue. Listen to this. Think about this. This important truth. Jesus never uttered a single sinful sentence. Not even a single sinful word. Never. Let's stop and pause. Let's pray as we ponder that truth, okay? And as we enter into our lesson today, let's pray. Father, Help us to understand these truths. Help us to understand the importance of our words. Lord, help us to look and see and understand and accept what the scriptures have to say and how important this topic is to our lives today, how important it is to you. And may we be changed and more like Christ as we yield to your truth. In Christ's name we pray, amen. Jesus never uttered a single sinful sentence, not even a single sinful word. Never. I uh, grew up with four, I had three brothers, there was four boys all together. <clears throat> if you've grown up with siblings, you kind of know what goes on. Um, a few rivalries, disputes, fights, jealousies, yeah, a lot of good things, but boy, there was a lot of the other stuff going on, rough and tumble, Hurtful words, angry words, sarcastic words, taunting words, put-downs, and much, much more. I think my mom and dad needed uh, the black and white striped shirts, right? Referees with a whistle <laughs> to oftentimes break up what went on in a home like that with boys. And I thought uh, about that a little bit, how Jesus was raised with siblings as well. Never a cross word, never angry, jealous words, never cross words with the parents, a spirit of rebellion that came out in speech like that, never gossip about the weird neighbor next door. And all this while living with siblings and parents and, and, and neighbors that, that sin with their tongues all the time. Think of this passage here, even... Um, It'll come to mind here, 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 21 through 23. 
For to this you have been called, because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example so that you may follow in his steps. Look at this, verse 22. He committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly, even to the point of the cross, even to the point of being unjustly condemned, even at the point of being uh, uh, crucified at the hands of sinners. He never uttered a cross word. He didn't revile. Now think with me further about this as we think about the perfect tongue of Jesus, right? Look at this. He not only never uttered a single sinful sentence or a single sinful word, but Jesus always spoke with righteous words. Every one of them. Always. Always. Jesus had a sinless perfect tongue. Always righteous words. Always timely words. Always wise and edifying words. And they were words that always gave glory and honor to God the Father. They never fully, they never failed to fully and properly promote God's purposes. They were always perfectly consistent with his will. Jesus had a sinless, perfect tongue. You know, we think about being like Jesus. I think about my actions, and I'm forced when I look at this topic to look at my tongue and how often I dismiss my words, my speech. Why? Because they're just words. (laughs) It's more important what I do, not what I say. And if we really are serious about becoming more like Christ, the perfect Christ, to be sanctified, to be more like him, to be walking in a place where, in a journey where I'm becoming more in the image of Christ day by day being transformed, then I have to be serious about my tongue. Jesus had the perfect tongue, and that's who I want to be like. I want to be like Jesus, which means words are important. They mean something. They carry something. Look at Isaiah's reaction when he saw a vision of the Lord in all his glory, seated on his throne. Look what Isaiah said, just given a glimpse of this glory. And he said, woe is me, for I am lost, for I am a, look what he says, a man of unclean lips. And I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips, for my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. Isaiah seeing a a glimpse of the sinless, perfect, holy, all-powerful God. He he, he comes before him in, in shame in the presence of the king. He's undone. He's unworthy. And the first thing he states that that communicates this unworthiness is the sick condition of his sinful tongue. Hey, praise God, we have a mediator in the Lord Jesus Christ, right? We can now come before his presence because of the one who spoke perfectly, the one that only died for our sins, but when you believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, gives you his righteousness. 
And now, even though I still struggle with my sins, I can come before his presence with boldness, right? Why? Not because of me. Isaiah was undone, but now with Christ, I can come and I can speak to him and fellowship with him and follow him and learn of him. And this is why we were created. It's God's purpose for us to speak and live for him, to reflect his glory. And until that day when our sins are no more in this unredeemed flesh, we're, we're being progressively transformed and changed and renovated and be, be made more like the Lord Jesus Christ. We think of 2 Corinthians 3.18, right? And we all with unveiled face beholding the glory of the Lord are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. We're not there yet. We all know that, right? But on this journey on earth, while we're still in this unredeemed flesh, God is changing us. We're being transformed. We're becoming more like Christ. If you know the Lord Jesus Christ, he began a good work in you, and he will complete it. And this is what God is doing. It all starts, and it finishes with our redeemed heart. And we, we've been looking at Ezekiel 36, 26 through 27. He covenanted with God and his people, a promise to us. He'll give us a new heart, a new spirit he'll put within you. He'll remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. When we think about our speech, it must go beyond behavior modification the soap and mouth mentality, right? Just cleaning up the outside without addressing the inside is a problem. Jesus said this, but what comes out of the mouth proceeds from the heart. It's a heart issue. You can think of your words as informants, right? They look in, they spy, they, they, they tattle. They're the narc of your heart, right? They outwardly announce the reality of what's inside. And when there's good words, it speaks of something good, the, the good treasure in your heart. When there's bad words, sinful words, it speaks of what's wrong, what's evil, what's sinful. James attests to this in James chapter 4, verse 1. Again, these are review uh, items from the last few weeks. James 4, 1. He said this, What causes quarrels and what causes fights among you? Why is there crosswords? Why is there argument? You know, why is, is, are, are there words of arrogance and hateful words and angry words? Why does this come up? And he says this, is it not this, that your passions are at war within you? There's things going on inside. There's a battle going inside, inside your heart. There's desires that are not being fulfilled, and we sin to keep them. You desire and do not have, verse 2 of James chapter 4, so you murder. You covet cannot obtain desires of the heart, so you fight and quarrel. Now, we were looking at, it looks like this right here, all right? Sinful, self-pleasing heart uh, desires of the heart result invariably, always will, behaviors that are sinful, disobedient, sinful words and actions. And we see that often displayed in our emotions, anger, anxiety, depression, strife. We're not feelings-oriented Christians. We don't gauge the Christian life by our feelings, but you better not ignore them. 
And if you trace back angry, anxiety, depression, discouragement, strife, when you trace that back to behaviors that were sinful and disobedient actions, you must take it always back to the heart. You can ask yourself these things. I mean, first of all, we have to understand not all desires are wrong. There are many good desires. It's not the desire, unless it's morally not permitted in Scripture, right? It's not the desire that's the problem. Here's the problem here. How do I know if my desires that are warring in my heart have become a wrong desire? Ask yourself three questions. What is it that I'm desiring or want? Am I willing to sin to fulfill this desire? And do I respond sinfully when this desire is unfulfilled? This is what you need to look at. This is what identifies idols of the heart. Remember I was speaking about, uh, uh, well, for those of you who weren't here, I was speaking last week about certain sins of my tongue and complaining and grumbling, and I talked about a car that was in my way as, as Christy and I were going through the cornfields of Ohio, not literally the cornfields, down the road with all cornfields all around us, and, uh, and I've got this pickup truck going 45 miles an hour, and uh, I need to be in Columbus because we got food to bring, and we got people we want to spend Thanksgiving with. And I'm really tired of seeing this pickup truck who really is in no hurry. Uh, and grumbling and complaining started coming out of my, my mouth. My dear wife, Christy, is sitting next to me, and she's just enjoying everything. She's watching the empty cornfields and watching the sun and the beauty. Same circumstances. I'm all tied up in a knot, and she's just enjoying. We had different desires. We had different things warring within us, right? And, and my desire wasn't being fulfilled. I wanted to be somewhere, and this person was in my way, and all the uglies started coming out. I'll be talking about that more as we move along here. But what I had to do was address my heart. When my desire is to please God, what does it lead to? Obedient, God-honoring words and actions, and emotions of blessing and joy and happiness and peace. doesn't mean it's easy. But, oh, we can have joy in those trials, can't we, when our desire is to please God. You've been through trials before, and all the ugly comes out, right? The complaining. What's God doing? Why did this have to happen? What is this person thinking doing this in my life? Oh, that professor who just, he has a, just seemed like a death wish to make my life miserable on campus, right? Uh, on and on and on and on. And what, all the ugliness comes out. But wait, when our desire is to please God, we trace that back and say, Lord, how are you using this? What do you want to do? A whole different perspective. And when we have that, good things come out. Good things come out of our, of our mouths. God honoring things. And so what, what needs to be our desire? What's the overruling desire of our heart that needs to win the battle, that needs to win the day, that needs to shape our desires when we get them and when we don't? So whether we, we are at home or away, we make it our aim to please him. So what does our speech look like that is redemptive, holy, righteous, and godly? As we make it our aim to please Christ, in what ways will it appear in the way I talk? How must I strive to speak in a new way, a God-honoring way, from a heart that's yielding to God? And that's what we want to look at today. Lesson four, truths about my tongue. 
And we're going to be looking at communicating with godly speech. Communicating with godly speech. Learning to speak with a transformed tongue. Learning to speak more like Jesus did. Learning to speak in ways we want to speak. There's not a one of us, perhaps today, last week, in the past, that look back and say, why did I say what I said? I wish I could take back those words. Lord, why don't I speak in ways that are helping people? Why is it always about me? How can I speak more like Jesus? How can God use my words for his glory? How can I speak in ways that are edifying and good and productive? So the key thoughts for today are this. Growth in Christ-likeness includes a transformation of our tongues that speak excellently to both God and others. Growth in Christ-likeness includes a transformation of our tongues. It must. You cannot exclude that. Don't give yourself a pass. I need to learn to speak excellently to both God and others. What do we do? What does it look like? So what we're going to look at here, to put it in our terms, we're going to look at five ways to speak with a transformed tongue. Five ways to speak with a transformed tongue. And first, we're going to learn to speak with excellence. This is kind of an overarching point in our lesson. And as we're thinking about that, turn over to Ephesians chapter 4 in your copy of the scriptures. Ephesians chapter 4. And we're going to see there in verse 24 of Ephesians 4 that we're to put on the new self. The new self created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. What we're going to see here are the nuts and bolts of replacing sinful speech with righteous speech. All right? Learning to speak with excellence. The emphasis here on learn, all right? Putting off and putting on. Look at there at verse 17. It says there, you must no longer live as the Gentiles do. You have a new calling. You have a new identity. Chapters 1 through 3 speak about everything Christ, Christ has done for us, to redeem us, to change us. And now I am no longer what I used to be. I used to be dead in my sins, and now I'm alive in Christ. And now I have purpose. Now I have meaning. Now I have life. And this life is now one live for God with the ability to live for God. So in all this, you look at verses 21 through 24 and following, we're called to pursue this new life, this spirit-filled life, in a manner that's consistent with our new identity in Christ. If you look there at verse 22, you'll see a command to put off your old self. You go back to the language there, the Greek. It's talking about taking off dirty, soiled clothes. This isn't your identity anymore. Those things that are sinful, we're to jettison them. We're to put them away. Another way you could say it is like Paul did in Romans. We're to mortify the flesh. Stop speaking sinful words. Put them off, right? And look what it says there in verse 24. Put on your new self. Put on the right clothes. Put on those clothes that represent Christ. In other words, in our topic here, righteous and good words. 
And look how that's displayed in verse 25. Therefore, having put away falsehood, let each of you speak the truth with his neighbor. Put away, put off falsehood, lying, sinful speech. What do you do? You replace that by speaking truth, right? Look down um, verse 28. Let the thief no longer steal, put off, but let him labor, doing honest work, put on. Look at verse 29. Let no corrupting talk, sinful speech, come out of your mouths, put off, right? But only such as is good for building up, as fits the occasion. Edifying speech, helpful speech, productive speech, others-oriented speech, putting off, putting on. You'll see that in verses 31 and 32 as well. Putting off bitterness, wrath, anger, clamor, slander, malice, and replacing that with kindness, tenderheartedness, and forgiveness in verse 32. We're, we're seeing a beautiful picture of repentance here. You know, we think typically the prodigal son who goes away to a faraway land, squabbles and, 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 and squanders away the inheritance, understands his sin, and the beautiful picture of salvation with a father waiting with open arms, and he trusts and receives Christ. But let's, let's remind ourselves, it's not repentance isn't just the big event at salvation, as important as that is. We must be a confessing and repenting people continually, every day, throughout the day. We must always be confronting our sin. When we speak the wrong thing, we just cannot excuse that and say, well, these were just words. We must go back, confess, put off, put on, turn around. This is repentance. It's a turning, right? So what I want to do here is give you some examples of how to learn to speak with excellence when we compare sinful speech, which we did last week, so this will be part of our review, and then something new here. What are righteous replacements. So one thing we looked at last week was grumbling and complaining. Anyone have a problem with that besides me? Whining, complaining, grumbling and complaining is that display of dissatisfaction in one's circumstances. And we know what it's rooted in. It's an unbelief of God's promises and his provision, right? What's a righteous replacement? It's thanksgiving. It's gratitude. It's praise. There's room to give thanks. 1 Thessalonians 5.18, Give thanks in all circumstances, for this is the will of God for you in Christ Jesus. What about flattery? A lie disguised as an encouragement. Insidious form of sin. Self-centered. Selfish motives to manipulate. It's, it's an encouragement but it's disguised as an encouragement, right? Biblical replacements are, are true biblical encouragement and exhortation. Proverbs 12, 25 says, Anxiety in a man's heart weighs him down, but a good word makes him glad. It, true biblical encouragements are spoken with a motive that's good for the other person. It's for their benefit. It's not self-centered. Love never flatters. There's gossip 
and slander, you know, maliciously discussing details about someone else that is often false or it's sensationalized. I would say our best replacement is just unspoken words. Proverbs 11.13 says this, Whoever goes about slandering reveals secrets, but he who is trustworthy in spirit keeps a thing covered. Don't repeat it. What about angry speech? We spoke about that this week, rash, or last week. It's, it's rash and hateful words that arise from pride and selfishness. And what are the replacements? Gentle, calm, patient words. Proverbs 15.1 says, A soft answer turns away wrath, but a harsh word stirs up anger. I remember one time driving our, our car out of the neighborhood. Christy was with me. I was just going too fast. Made a left turn onto another busier road and ran right into the back, clicked the back end of a pickup truck going by. Oh, I don't like those days. We're both sitting on the side of the road. And he came out rather angry. And he was bigger than me. All right? And this verse came to mind. A soft answer turns away wrath. <laughs> so partly because of self-preservation and partly because of wanting to honor the Lord, I, I immediately said what a lawyer would never say to do. It was my fault. <laughs> I did. I said, Leah, I did not see you. I am so sorry. And this man who was ready to give me a knuckle sandwich just completely relented. And we were able to talk about it, figure out what to do from there. Boy, how we can diffuse things by just being gentle and calm and patient. I wish I could say I always do it that way. But a soft answer turns away wrath. Quarrels, strifes, and arguments. Always want to pick a fight. Always wa wanting confrontation. Always just pulling the pin and throwing the grenade just for the the, the idea of uh, mixing things up and causing problems. And, you know, the, the, the replacement is kind and edifying words, kindness. There was uh, excessive words we talked about last week, verbosity. Speaking too many words. In, 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 in the speaking of many words, there is transgression, Proverbs says. And uh, really, the replacement for that are less words and more listening. When we speak too much, we don't listen. We're not good listeners. We're not good learners. And there's a place of just learning to speak less. Now, we need to speak good and productive things, but there's a place where we speak too much. Hasty speech, hasty. Words spoken so quickly that they lack wisdom and discernment. And, you know, the, the replacement for that is timely, thoughtful words, right? You know, we're just not just saying the first thing that comes to our mind. We can be so guilty of that sometimes, can't we? Whatever's there is just blah. You know, we just lay it out there. See if it sticks, right? And, 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 and there's, these, there's this verbosity mixed with hasty speech. And Proverbs 15.23 says this, a, a person finds joy in giving an apt reply. And how good is a timely word. Being thoughtful, using wisdom and discernment. Boasting is another sinful speech. Prideful, arrogant assertions about our life, right? Our circumstances or our future that we cannot control. And we need to have uh, in its replacement humble and others-focused words. 
a, hum, a humble approach that pleases God. It's not all about me in this life. And when, I, when God is seated on the throne of my heart, I, I want to speak in humility, and I want to speak towards things that are uh, edifying and good for others. And then uh, finally, uh, these aren't all the sinful speech of the scriptures, but the last one here is lies and deception. You know, lies just out, outright blatant things that aren't true, or deception, misleading someone by misrepresenting or concealing information. A deception is a lie. And we replace that with truth, with integrity, to say the truth and nothing but the truth. What are we doing here? In all this, I'm learning to speak with excellence. When I say learn, this takes practice. What do Philippians tell us? Work out your salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who is at work in you to accomplish his good purpose, his, 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 good, his, good, his good will. He works alongside with me, and I work alongside with him. It takes both. It's not just let go and let God. Well, maybe someday this speech thing will be taken care of, and I'll stop gossiping, or I'll stop complaining. And we go 100 miles an hour, and, and God, God puts the brakes here and says, wait, you have to learn this. You have to put off. You have to put on. You have to confess. Look at this list. What are the sinful speech patterns you struggle with? What do you need to confess before the Lord? What do you need to put off the nuts and bolts of confession before the Lord, repenting that I will not do that by your, with your help, Lord, and I will strive to then replace these sinful words with excellent words. Practice. Hebrews 5.14 says this, but solid food is for the mature, for those who have their powers of discernment trained by constant practice to distinguish good from evil. We must practice a life of godliness. When you, when you look at someone who speaks good words, productive words, you see someone living a holy life, what are, they, what are they showing you? They have lived a life of putting off and putting on, practicing righteousness. You might be looking at this list and say, this is, this is way too much. I am overwhelmed with guilt. I am so far. But that's what God does. He, he takes us where we are. And what we do, we submit, we learn, we practice. You must confess, you must repent, you must put off, you must put on every day. What did, what did David say in Psalm 39? I will guard my ways, Psalm 39.1. I will guard my ways that I may not sin with my tongue. It requires work on our part with God's enablement. All right? Let's keep moving along here. Five ways to speak with a transformed tongue. There's learning to speak with excellence, and there's now speaking to encourage and exhort. Well, look at this passage here, 1 Thessalonians 5.14. It says this, And we urge you, brothers, admonish the idle, encourage the faint-hearted, help the weak, be patient with them all. We're going to take this one phrase here. Encourage the faint-hearted. The faint-hearted. It literally means small-souled. These are the discouraged, the weary, the despondent, right? Those who are depressed, discouragement. The issue here in encouragement is not addressing 
rebellion, but it's rather uh, addressing this feeling, these feelings of defeat, this lack of ambition, discouragement that may come from, from circumstances or trials or disappointments in life. I remember when I lost my job in Columbus. That's not an easy thing. Living in Columbus 25 years, lose my job, bad economy, no place to work, and I come out here, a week to decide if I'll take this job. Christy had never seen the place. She's going by faith, because I had seen it before. Hey, we're moving to Lynchburg. What do you think? I've never seen it. Let's pack our bags. And uh, it was intimidating. I'll never forget one of our one of our international students from Singapore there at Ohio State. And she just wrote a simple email. Just just reminding me of God's faithfulness. Just typing in there, God's God's got this. He's there for you. Um, God will use you where you go. Boy, that was the encouragement I needed. I was, you know, sometimes we just look at others that are, um, and I, I do the same thing, we, we, we see at those that are hurting and struggling, and we get so busy with ourselves, we can't pause enough to give a word of encouragement to lift them up. You know, this week, it's probably a hard week to talk about this, because, man, you've got to be in the zone with what you've got to do this week, right? Man, you've got assignments, you've got papers, you've got, you got deadlines, you've got tests. And boy, I don't know about you, but when I have a week like that, I, I just feel very self-centered. I'm just, it's just, I don't like that feeling. And, you know, the encouragement here is go out and, you know, there's people that are hurting around you right now. Is there anyone back at the dorm that needs to be just lifted up, that, that, that you can come alongside? That's what this is all about, coming alongside. There's no self-centeredness here to cheer them, to help them. Uh, Close with that is exhortation, a little bit different. It's earnestly appealing to others to respond properly to God's truth, okay? You're calling them. You're summoning them. You're, you're exhorting them. This isn't the coach's halftime speech, rah, 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 you know, go out there and knock heads, blood makes the grass grow, you know, baba, you know, go, go do it. This is godly exhortation that finds its basis and substance in the truth of God's word. Listen to 1 Timothy 4.13. He said this, Paul said this to uh, Timothy. He, he, he tells him, he, he commands him, until I come, devote yourself to the public reading of Scripture, to exhortation, to teaching. Paul's expected ministry from Timothy to these people was not only to include a proclamation of truth, but also include this call to obey, this call to follow, this call to respond as God would have you do. Embrace this reality. You know, Hebrews 3, 12 and 13. Wow, what a powerful passage. How you can be involved in exhortation. Take care, brothers, lest there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart leading you to fall away from the living God. That's our reality, right? We are all fundamentally deceived by sin in some way in our lives. And what are we to do as a result? What do we do when we fellowship? What do we do together? Hebrews 12, 13, or Hebrews 3, verse 13. But exhort one another 
every day, as long as it's called today, that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. What is it saying? Man, as we receive faithful teaching, exhort one another to follow, to obey it. I'm so encouraged after Boundless, before Boundless, how so many of you are involved with, what do I have to do to make the scripture, to, to, to believe what God has to say about himself? Or to follow and obey what he's told me to do that I struggle with so much. What do we do? I see exhortation with each other. Men, you need to bring out the call for other men. Strive for purity. Putting off immorality. The struggles men have. Exhort each other to obey the truth. Ladies, hold each other accountable to godly pursuits, not frivolous activity, and all the things in the Christian life that are so important. Exhort. Encourage. Another way to speak with a transformed tongue, number three, is speak with compassionate confrontation. Speak with compassionate confrontation. You know, confrontation is one of those words that we kind of like grimace at a little bit. But really, it's quite a profitable activity, a biblical one, and one that's commanded. Listen to Proverbs 27, verses 5 and 6. Better is open rebuke than hidden love. Faithful are the wounds of a friend. Profuse, or many deceitful words, are the kisses of an enemy. Faithful friends demonstrate their love to others by saying necessary things that sometimes hurt. Correction. This is taking normal conversation, speaking with somebody, and becoming more intentional, speaking into their life, right? What do faithful words of a friend look like? Well, a common passage we know is 2 Timothy 3, 16 and 17, right? All scripture is breathed out by God, and it's profitable. Listen to what it's profitable for. For teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness, all those things, so that the man of God may be complete and equipped for every good work. The word of God is sufficient, but it must be used properly. And some of the proper uses of the word must be correction if we want to be fully equipped. And that means in our tongues, we must be willing and brave and loving in correcting others. And that also means we have to be ready to receive correction when it's warranted and when it comes to our attention and it's based on the word of God if we want to be fully equipped. One of those words in 2 Timothy 3, 16 and 17 was teaching, right? Doctrine. Instructing the content of the message of what God has to say. Also, there was reproof. Reprove others. This is correcting wrong behaviors. Wrong behaviors that are sinful. Reproof. It's exposing sin. Using God's word to point out errors in someone's life. Correct is also there. There's correction. It's profitable. The word is profitable for correction. Correction is restoring something to its proper condition. It's showing someone in the direction of proper behavior or thinking. It's not a bad word. This is mending. This is bringing healing. This is showing someone how to get in the right place. 
And then there's rebuke. Another word in the, uh, that Paul uses frequently, Jesus used frequently, it's an, in a, it's an expression of strong disapproval, a stronger word than reprove. It's refuting error, false teaching, or sin in someone else's life. Have you ever been lovingly reproved or corrected by someone? Maybe it wasn't all in the nature of love, but you got some correction. <laughs> I can tell you how profitable that's been in my life. Um, I remember when I was not attending a biblical church. I was newly saved. I was still in the Catholic church, and someone said, you know, that's not a real church. I'm like, you know, I'm thinking, what? <laughs> it's got a building. There's people there. <laughs> they speak about the Bible a little. Um, I needed to hear that. I didn't know. Yeah, the, the churches where saints gather, the called out ones. And as you know, you're well taught here from our pastors. Well, there's, there's, there's things that make up a healthy church, and that was not a part of my life that I needed. To, I needed that reproof. I needed correction. I remember when I started dating a girl, newly saved again. I just picked a girl that looked pretty. Oh, let's go. Let's go do this and that. My, my saved roommate who shared the gospel with me for the first time and I came to know Christ said, you know, the Bible says uh, that Christians are supposed to date Christians, not unbelievers. Really? <laughs> I didn't know that. And, you know, it kind of catches you off guard. What, what are you to tell me? And then I'm thinking, oh, here's the scripture, not being unequally yoked. All these things of why we're to pursue those that are also pursuing Christ. I needed that correction. Correction. Now, another way of, of uh, in this whole area is biblical counsel. Let me just show you real quickly here. Romans 15, 14, important verse. Book of Paul says, I am satisfied about you, my brothers, that you yourselves are full of goodness, filled with all knowledge, and able to instruct one another. Able to instruct. The words here about is giving counsel, admonishing, warning, exhorting, literally to put something in someone's mind. This is encouraging others. Uh, advising them, warning them in view of their sinful behavior. It's biblical counsel, euthetic counseling. It's giving counsel with a warning involved. If you've received godly counsel this year, maybe you're thinking, how, how can I give godly counsel? What do I need to do? Here's suggestions for growth in giving biblical counseling, correction, reproof, um, rebuke. You know, first of all, you've got to first be looking at your own practice of godliness. Not perfection. You won't be perfect. But man, I have to be working to strive in godliness in my life that I may be able and be in a position to be able to really properly help others in their practice of godliness in their life. I need to examine myself first before approaching someone else. Matthew 7, get the log out of your own eye, self-examination. And then it says, what does it say in Matthew 7? Then you can see clearly the speck in the other person's eye. I must do self-evaluation, self-confrontation, address my sin, not perfection, but to properly judge others, which we're commanded to do, I must first judge myself. I must saturate my mind and heart with Scripture. What does it say there in Romans 15, 14? You yourselves are full of goodness, that's that holy living, filled with all knowledge, right? I need to let the Word of God dwell richly in my heart. I must give scriptural information. I need to be informed. Not a theologian, scriptural truth. Learn from others who counsel well. Man, my radar's up when I see a pastor giving counsel, when they're preaching from a pulpit, when they're sharing techniques, 
Think of the biblical counseling classes that are available in this church. Wow, it's so amazing when you see those classes come up and participate in them. I can learn and be equipped to help others in this, these areas of biblical counsel. And then put on love. Put on love. This is why we counsel. Restore, uh, Galatians 6, 1 and 2 says, talks about restoring a sinner in a spirit of gentleness, bearing their burden to fulfill the law of Christ. It's not, being a, it's not about being a sin sniffer, or I'm on the hunt, right, to find that sinner, that prodigal, and, the, and to make their life miserable until they repent. No. It's about loving your brothers and sisters in Christ and sending them in the right direction, realizing they're fundamentally deceived by their sin. So five ways to speak about transformed tongues. Let's look at number four. Speak with redemptive and representative words. Redemptive and representative words. We'll be really brief here, but, you know, we're called to be ambassadors. We're ambassadors for Christ. God making his appealing appeal through us. We implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. We're his representatives. An ambassador represents and speaks for a higher authority. Man, if we start getting our eyes off ourselves and make our heart more about pleasing Christ, we want to speak for God, for his purposes, for his glory, for his will. And that's preaching the gospel to the unsaved and speaking truth into other people's lives as we have been talking about. So speak redemptively, speak representative words. Godly speech, in other words, is not about just avoiding the bad words, but we're spokespeople for God. We speak on behalf of our ruler, and king. And finally, five ways to speak with a transformed tongue. Speak with words of prayer, thanksgiving, and praise. This is our last point. Uh, Psalm uh, 105, verses 1 and 2. Oh, give thanks to the Lord. Call upon his name. Make known his deeds among the peoples. Sing to him. Sing praises to him. Tell of all his wondrous works. You know, prayer is that expression of, of our need for God, of our dependence on him. We, get, we have the privilege of speaking directly with God. He commands us to do so. And I'm just amazed that he will accomplish his will through my prayers. He is not my puppet. He does not follow my orders. But my prayers in consistency with his will is his way of, of, of accomplishing it. I don't understand it. I don't know why. Why would he include me? But he does. And when I get my eyes off myself and start praying for his will, he answers prayer. And what? Our hearts must be filled with thanksgiving. To consider God for everything he is, his love, his mercy, his patience, his kindness. And what do we do? Because of who he is, when we see him for who he is, we give him thanks. And from a heart of thanksgiving flow words of praise, mighty and wonderful for the things he has done. You know, many of you have a busy, challenging close to your semester. <laughs> that is no mystery. That's the duh statement of the day. And in times of stress and busyness, whether you're in school or at work, there's this uh, temptation to turn inward, to be irritable, to be whiny. And we miss these things about prayer, and thanksgiving, and praise. I want to close by making a statement from Ed Welch. He's a biblical counselor, speaker, author. He was commenting on the attitudes of the Israelites when they were in the desert 
and God had already miraculously pulled them out of Egypt, taking them to the promised land, and it wasn't long they started whining and complaining, can we go back to Egypt? Why did you lead us here, Moses? Complaints against God and what he was doing. Chris and I were listening to a message by Ed Welch, and we both heard the statement, and our mouths just needed to get it right with God. Listen to what Ed Welch says. When do you find yourself grumbling and complaining? That is an early warning sign that you are vulnerable. You are believing lies about who God is. He is stingy. He is trying to make your life a little bit more miserable. He is taking you out of this land of plenty, out of Egypt of all places. He is being stingy with you, and he is bringing you to a place to die. He is simply not trustworthy. We need to take matters into our own hands. When you find yourself grumbling or complaining, when you find yourself angry, those are all early warning signs that you have succumbed to this kingdom of lies. Thank you is such a resounding expression of living in the kingdom of, God, of light. Thank you is an acknowledgement of the truth of who God is and what he has done in the person of Christ. Thank you is an expression of humility. I have been needy, and you have given me the things that I needed. Thankfulness summarizes all spiritual realities for us. As we close here, wow, may God's grace be with us as he works to change the desires of our heart, as we work to make him Lord in the power of the Spirit, and as we practice, as we learn speaking godly, righteous, compassionate, edifying words with a transformed tongue. May God help us in that as we all strive to be more like Christ in the power of the Spirit. I'm going to let you guys go because it's time to get to church. Enjoy your Sundays. Thanks for being here. Hope to see you at the Christmas party this Thursday. All right.